Hello, passionate people. You are listening to Passion Harvest. Thank you so much for listening today. And as always, I'm so passionate to share these episodes with you. I'm Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. Every week we share new episodes talking with people across the planet who have an inspiring, entertaining and passionate story to share, taking you on a journey to discover your passion. My guest today on Passion Harvest is Keita S. Brown. Keita is an internationally renowned ceremonialist and cowrie shell diviner, a healer, intuitive, and teacher of psychological and spiritual awareness. Keita has developed a unique approach to emotional and spiritual healing by braiding together his depth of clinical knowledge of experiential psychotherapies with more nature-based indigenous wisdom teachings and ritual healing methods from around the world. Keita is the founder of Rites of Passage Council, an organization offering nature-based treatment and professional training programs. He blends many creative and expressive forms of depth psychology with Indigenous Methods of Healing. Keita Brown, I am so honoured you are here today to share your passions. Thank you and welcome to Passion Harvest. Thank you. It's great to be here. <laughs> welcome. Um, gosh, I've got a, quite a few questions for you, but I'd, just, I'd love to hear a bit more about your journey. Obviously, nature plays such an important role, and I've had a look at all the um, internships, or you call them, that you've done across the world. They look fascinating. Um, I guess, how did you start your journey in this healing modality? Um, well, that's a, that's a big question. Let's see where to begin. Um, <laughs> so I entered into the field of uh, professional psychotherapy at age 25 and um, proceeded down that route and then began to blend that with nature. And then something very significant happened which is my father died when I was uh, 32 and I got to be there with him and, and usher him through that transition. Um, but what happened in me is that the 14 year old kid in me woke up and what the 14 year old kid in me remembered is that he wanted to do this thing that was called a vision quest ceremony. Now, when I was 14, I didn't know what that was. Mm. Um, and nobody in my world knew what that was, um, but I could describe it to people back when I was 14. Um, and it took a loose form of spending a lot of time in nature and, and um, camping and, and, and it took that form. But when my father passed away and what I've come to believe now is that when someone we love crosses over, there's a transfer of a blessing that happens um, in that transition that they send toward the living and if we're awake enough to receive it, our life can uh, align itself uh, toward our passion, toward our purpose. Um, and then again, if we're not awake enough to receive it, it can get quite challenging. So that happened. And then I had a few uh, what I call uh, non-ordinary reality experiences that kept ushering me toward this uh, apprenticeship to this ceremony called Vision Quest. And that was everything from um, walking out of a, a daycare. I just dropped off my, my uh, three-year-old daughter at the daycare. This was back in, I don't know, 1991, 92. And I walked out of this daycare in this, this rural country town, two-lane road in front of me. 
and I'm in deep contemplation about what to do with my life. And I look up and going down the road or are three covered wagons. I always tell people here, I'm not hallucinating. They're actually there (laughs) drawn by horses. And on the side of these covered wagons are the sign vision quest. Wow. Um, And then uh, another few incidences like that of, of visiting a church of a friend of mine and thinking about doing this ceremony, being up on the mountain, and reflecting on my background with Catholicism and, and uh, growing up in, in that frame of spirituality, and which fortunately for me wasn't terrible. Um, and uh, I thought while I was sitting in the church service, I thought, you know, I want to honor uh, my ancestors in that particular upbringing. So when I go out on the mountain to do this quest, I'm going to carry a small cross in the palm of my hand and I'll just deal whatever I have to deal with because all your fears come to you, right? When you're out there. So the service ended and I get a tap on the shoulder and I turn around and I look in the eyes of this old man and old woman, both taller than me. So they're like six, two, three long gray hair, both of them, which is another unusual thing in this small town. And the man looks me in the eye and he says, I'm supposed to give you this. And he reaches out and puts that small cross in my hand at that moment. Wow. Um, and then the other, uh, one other thing that happened was that um, I had gone to this health club to work out. I was working as a psychotherapist uh, in private practice at this time. And I went, to, I go to this health club several days a week and I w- went down to the locker room at the end of my workout. And I reached and grabbed the locker to open it. Now, at this time, I had been studying a lot of the medicine wheel, uh, Native American medicine wheel work in the four directions and the four colors. And when I opened that locker, uh, something that I couldn't see shot out of the locker and hit me right square in the chest and startled me Um, so much that I looked around to see if anybody else was down there because I knew somebody threw something at me. It hit so hard. Um, and I walked all around down there. There was nobody down there. And when I came back to my locker, I looked at the locker and then I looked on the floor and there were four feathers and they were red, yellow, black, and white. Um, and by this time I'm, I'm a little bit, well, a lot, uh, nervous about what's happening. <laughs> so I go to my friend uh, that I have that pours sweat lodges for, uh, the sun bear tribe out in Washington state. And I tell him the story and he said, well, you better do this ceremony where it's going to get a lot worse. <laughs> um, they're being gentle with you right now. And uh, so I did. I found my way a, a year later to apprenticing in this ceremony. And the last night of my quest, which is that symbolic death and rebirth night, um, sitting there on the mountain at 9,000 feet, it occurred to me that that very night was the night two years earlier that my father had died when this, when this vision, when this memory and this longing had woken up in me. So it came full circle. And when I came down off the mountain, um, I knew that this work was what I was meant to do. And I began to blend my clinical work with ceremony and ritual, particularly that ceremony. Um, and then over the years had different teachers and, um, indigenous elders that I work with. That's the Story. Those synchronicities are just, and, and your awareness of them are fantastic. <laughs> yeah, Would you mind just explaining what, in a little bit more detail, what is a vision quest for those that don't know? 
So let me speak to the, the, the word vision quest. Um, it's, uh, it references a, an initiatory rite of passage. Um, in, in your country, you would call it walkabout. Here, the native cultures would call it uh, vision quest, or in the British Isles, they might call it hill walking. Okay. So it's a process of, uh, under the tutelage of, a, of an elder, one would be prepared to go into the wilds, into nature, into the wilderness, um, uh, for a period of fasting uh, with very minimal provisions or no provisions, and, and alone for a period of time. Mm -hmm. uh, that period of time can vary. Um, and so the, 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 uh, in that ceremony, there's what's called the calling phase, which is, that was what I was describing. That was my calling phase. That was the first part of my story. Then there's the severance phase where you start to dismantle yourself and unplug yourself from the life you've been living because it's not quite working anymore. Um, and then there's the threshold phase. And this is the, the going out into the, the wilderness. Um, and then there's the return where you come back with a new story um, that, that you're living into. So in that, in that context, um, what's commonly known over here as a vision quest ceremony is an initiatory rite of passage um, that is uh, in, in indigenous cultures was used to activate the memory of the, the medicine that you carry, that you came here to offer. Um, so as indigenous cultures, they would, they would speak of this idea that you would have made agreements with your ancestors before coming here about a gift that you're bringing, a gift that's needed here, and that these particular rites of passage initiations are designed to, uh, to activate and awaken the memory of those agreements so that you can align yourself with that uh, medicine and, and that passion, speaking of your... your uh, <laughs> title of your program <laughs> I, I love that and and you mentioned um at the age of 14 uh you remembered or you had some feeling about it is it is there a certain age one in generally in indigenous cultures that it is aged 14 or not necessarily i don't think it's uh, specific to that age i think earlier cultures probably a little earlier uh than than our uh, modern cultures mm -hmm. but i do think there is something uh uh, that we call bone memory, DNA memory, that is uh, looking to be awakened at that time. And um, what I would, when I work with young people, um, I say, if this, if this awakening is not ushered into life with and, and guided by uh, initiated elders or initiated adults. Um, these young people will still seek initiation um, on their own, usually with each other. And, the, and they take the form of dangerous behaviors or risky behaviors or um, in an attempt to what I call brush up against the sacred. Um, mm -hmm. So the turmoil that we often see happening in adolescence is the unmet longing of this initiatory impulse that's trying to find its way, we could say trying to find its way into the wilderness to experience this. I love that. I love that. I've never thought about it like that. That's a beautiful full way to explain it. It's really, really fantastic. So yeah. um, you are 
just been looking at your website. One, I'd love to come to one, but you facilitate these vision quests. You have some offerings on your website. Right. We have, um, I've been uh, offering vision quests since 94, 95. And um, so we have a couple of year that we offer, um, two or three. I have a couple in the States. And then uh, this past May, we did one over in the UK and Wales. I saw you. Um, and, and then I have a training group where I'm, you know, I'm almost 60 now. So I'm looking at, um, I've started training people just as my, my uh, original uh, teacher in this particular ceremony, uh, when I wrote him and asked him, can I come do a quest with you? He said, I'm getting too old uh, to take people out on the mountain, but if you want to learn the ceremony, you can come and I'll teach you. And so with that, I'm just like, okay, it's time for me to start <laughs> teaching other people how to do this. You're young. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I want to keep doing it for a while. I still love to do it and I still take out, you know, two to three groups uh, of folks here. And then I have a training group. That's a, a 14 month long training um, that I do with folks um, to teach them how to, how to guide people. It must be such a joy to see, you know, before and after the, the people you take on the vision quest, there must be just that huge transformational change. It must be such a joy for you. It, it is, it is truly my passion and mm. My deep honor to, um, I mean, I can't think of any other uh, thing that I was, that I would be, you know, excited to do, to watch. Um, the tears come because when you say that, images flash in my mind of the countless numbers of people on both sides of that threshold. You know, I, I think of people just arriving at base camp and then hitting the ground in tears. Um, I think of people that uh, will do this silent walk from where we leave the cars and we hike into base camp. And that's why I tell you, you know, remove your watches, your phones, like everything stays here. And we do this really slow walk through nature. And, uh, and you know, images of people that just start to crack open uh, with the amount of grief that they've been holding. Um, and then on the other end, um, you know, Images of uh, bright and shiny faces, uh, images and, and uh, things that people are doing. They turn these into to songs or things they write or things they do in the world or renew their marriage. Their family connection gets renewed and um, or they take a, a huge life change. You know, they go back and realize they don't really fit into the life they've been creating all these years. And then the work of uh, bringing their life around to match this blueprint of who they are that they've discovered. That's incredible. So it's, it is an exciting journey. And I can see, I can see your passion. I can feel your passion in your voice. It's, it's just fantastic. Yeah. It's, it's, um, I can't think of anything else I'd, ra I'd rather be doing. And, um, and, you know, I have, uh, I have two daughters, one, one almost 30 and one 22, uh, almost 23. And to, you know, that's also part of my, um, you know, as a parent, part of one's a gift to the world is simply their children. And, and so watching them incorporate and make their own, uh, the things their dad does, <laughs> uh, 
But at 14, might have seemed quite weird and strange to them. But then as they got older, they realized that even their friends thought I was cool. So, Okay, uh, they're starting to appreciate you now. Yeah. I just wanted to backtrack. You mentioned um, when your father passed over or when uh, a loved one passes over in Indigenous culture, they offer you a gift if you're willing, if you're open and willing to receive it. Can you just explain a little bit more about that? Well, it's something that <clears throat> happened to me. And then as a, not only as a therapist, but as a, um, a wilderness uh, ceremonial guide, I began to notice this with other people as well, that when there's a, a transitioning of a loved one, um, especially if they die well, this, this whole concept of living well and dying well, that there's a, a, a departure, I call it a, a transfer of a blessing um, that, that is directed toward the living, toward the ones that are close to them, mm-hmm. um, that wakes up something in them about who they are, who they came here to be, what they came here to do. Uh, it's often at those times there's a lot of uh, examining one's life and, and um, looking that all of a sudden maybe this is the first time that death has entered their uh, field as a teacher. Uh, when they talk about, you know, seeing death as your ally because it teaches us how to uh, live mm. and love fiercely. Um, and so it might've been that, that, you know, when my father died, death entered my field as an ally through his, his departure and uh, this re-examining of my life and, and this, and I mean, there were other things that, uh, that happened in that awakening and that calling, um, that I didn't mention trying to shorten the story. (laughs) First thing actually was that he came to me in a dream not long after his death and we were sitting in this library and he pulls a book off the shelf, um, and hands it to me. And I look at the book and it says vision quest. Now he sold Mack truck for a living. You know, Vision Quest was not in his uh, wheelhouse. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't something he would have known about while he was alive. Um, But it it woke up that that uh, the longing of that fourteen year old, and that was his blessing to activate that in me, and that put me on put me back on this path. That's great. Um, I love it. And. Just in regards to um, your vision quest, and you mentioned you have some in America, but you also started to have some in England. Mm -hmm. Do you feel a difference in the land or in the vision quest in the different places, locations? I do. You know, the the spirit of the land or the spirits in the land Mm. are are different. what actually brought me uh, to the UK, to, to Scotland originally and started doing ceremonial work um, was uh, a singer songwriter that had come to my house from over there and, and sang some, some Scottish, ancient Scottish ballads. And we connected up and then um, because ceremony is uh, held together by song. Um, and so we put together something and, and went to Scotland. And then from there, it wasn't the vision quest, but it was grief rituals mm. um, that began to be asked for. And that, because my, whenever I get asked 
to go somewhere, my first thought is, what are the spirits of the land asking for? Because the way I see it, they're sending a message through humans uh, that come to me and say, will you come here? And I translate that to mean is they've heard something that's, that's calling from the land. Um, and so we're responding to something in the land, to the spirits of the land, wherever it is. And we ended up uh, going, and we're still, I'm, I'm going back in a couple of weeks to the Scottish borders, which is a, a land, if you think of anywhere in the UK, that's uh, probably more soaked with the, the blood of humans over the centuries. It's that area mm-hmm. between those, those the, between the Scotland and England. And it's been that area that's called for these grief rituals. Um, uh, you know, so it offers some healing. Uh, there's, a, there's an old uh, Irish or Celtic proverb that says that the troubles in the other world can only be healed from this world. And the troubles in this world can only be healed from that world. So that implies there's a reciprocal relationship of care and healing uh, between us and the ancestors. Mm. Um, And also there's a reciprocal field of turmoil between the unresolved dead and the unresolved living that keeps cycling, that needs attention. so, and that kind of energy gets embedded in the land. Um, and so the, when, so the land definitely has uh, a certain energy wherever you, ha- wherever you happen to go, whatever place calls to you. It's, it's, um, my thought is what, what, what part of this land is calling and what is the land asking for? Mm, um, I, I love that. And yeah. grief ritual, but, but do people come as an individual for their own personal grief, not necessarily associated with the land? Yes, they don't, they're not really aware. Most of the time, they're only aware of their personal uh, grief. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talk about grief as a larger understanding that it's, uh, I guess the first thing I say about grief is grief is not a personal dilemma to somehow be reconciled in, in, in uh, isolation. Grief is a collective responsibility to feed the spirits. Um, and so our, our outflow of tears um, connects a lot of different places. It's not just that we may know somebody that uh, died, um, that we also carry the grief of generations of those that have come before us. Mm-hmm. We carry the grief of, uh, you know, that, that, is, that is deposited in the land from those that have come before. Um, we carry grief uh, that's not, uh, as my teacher once said to me when I was sharing with him something I was feeling and thinking, he looked at me and he said, are those your thoughts and feelings? And I had never considered that. Mm. Um, and then I realized, you know, over the years I've seen that, you know, we carry things that aren't simply just our own. Um, the same way the earth is our mother carries what we are not willing to own. So it, we deposit these things in the land. So it's, uh, and grief is a blessing. Grief is a, uh, grief is a conduit of connecting hearts together. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's the one emotion that connects people uh, and all people, human and non-human. Um, it, it offers connection. 
Mm. Uh, and, and it's where all the, the shared stories, or the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves or about other people just kind of disappear in this collective offering of grief. It's, it's, there's a fine edge between grief and praise, as Martine Proctel says, or grief and gratitude. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm really interested um, in, you, I, I call it the energetic feeling, or you, you refer to it as the ancestors of the land. Or I guess all different locations around the world have different, to me, I would call them feelings, but you explain it much better, <laughs> the ancestors of the land. Why is this? Is, is this because, what, in your opinion, why does each location have different ancestors or feelings? Is it because of what has happened with humans in the past or not only that? Not only that, I think the original blueprint of our, we could say our passion, our original blueprint of our essence, uh, at least on this planet, comes from uh, the land that is uh, personally connected to our ancestors. So if you went back and if you went back behind your lineage and followed those four uh, lineage lines and you went far enough back at some point, the distinguishing between the human ancestor and the spirits of the land begins to begins to merge together so mm-hmm. that uh, our own understanding of ourselves and uh, uh, the cosmology systems that we uh, develop um, come out of the land. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the first songs that were translated by, by humans were the sounds of wind and birds and, in, in nature. Um, and so there's a place where uh, the human ancestor and the spirits of land kind of come together. And it's different. You know, when I was, uh, when I came there and I got to visit there back in 2012. S- Scot- uh, Scotland? No, oh, where you are. Oh, okay. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, not Sydney, but I, I went to Perth and then uh, met with a friend of mine who's an outback survivalist there. And, and we went up into the Northern Territory, up into Broome, and then down into uh, the Northern Territory there. And um, one of the first things we did when, when, once we got out there is he took me to a river and he said, I want to uh, bring you into a, what he called a welcome to land ceremony. So we walked down to the river and I placed my hands into the water and, and pulled up some of the soil in the sand. Then I rubbed the oil in my hands into the sand and placed it back in the river. And, and the understanding now is that now the river knows my name and I have introduced myself to the river. Um, and so the river will always remember your name when you return. So relationship to land was much more of a, we could say, an animistic approach. There's a, a livingness to one's relationship with land um, and, and the beings of land. It was a, um, when I want to say that, that animism was more of the relational context of understanding mm. um, in terms of the, the river, grandmother river, uh, or grandfather fire or these things were living beings that we have relationship with. Um, and so the, um, some of the teachings I, I brought from your country and some of the Aboriginal is that um, 
they didn't have uh, ca categorical names for things. One, one of the sad things about our English language is I, I call it a very kind of a dead static language because it's not alive and vibrant. Mm -hmm. um, so that in indigenous cultures, they, they had way more use of verbs. Things were described in action and movement. So we're always held in this relational changing context. Uh, of relationship so that uh, um, so things were named with a song or with a with a movement as opposed to a noun that kind of objectifies it um, and so that that kind of language you know our language informs our perception our perception informs our beliefs and then we get really trapped in these beliefs um, and stories but when we go back to just perception um, and that's one of the things I do with my students I say well take a walk in nature and I want you to forget the names of things maybe if you're lucky you'll forget your name for a while and I want you to engage the river and, and the beings on this land as if you've never seen you don't have a name for these things you don't know what they're called um, so all you're left with is a perceptual interaction and, and relationship and things come alive mm. uh, a teenage boy swore to me that a rock moved. <laughs> Get the name of what you think you're looking at and just hold it in your perceptual awareness. And he'd like jumped and he said, it moved. And I said, well, they, they'll do that, you know. <laughs> it's it's so amazing that, what happens in nature when you're open and willing to receive and mindful. It really, oh yeah, it's really, exciting. as you're talking about that, I'm kind of interested Um. Actually, next time I'm drawn to go somewhere on a holiday, I'm going to think, are the ancestors calling me or the spirit of the land? But <laughs> some, I mean, why are certain people drawn to certain parts of the world? So even if you weren't born in that part of the world and you go somewhere and, I mean, I've had people say to me, I feel like I'm home. I never want to leave. Right. What is, how did you explain that? Certain areas geographically vibrate at certain frequencies. Mm -hmm. And my belief is that when we're called to a certain area and we resonate with the word home, we have a, we have a belonging with this place. Maybe mm -hmm. we've never been there, but it's like I belong here. Um, that energetically that the frequency of the land uh, mirrors the frequency that I'm moving into. Right. And so it calls me, it's like it, it calls you to that land. Um, I believe that in a similar way that we have agreements with ancestors about certain gifts that we come here with um, and certain alignments with particular ancestors that also carry those gifts, that there are geographic locations that serve to activate the awareness of these, uh, of these energies in us so that when we go to that land, we can feel it. Um, other places on the landscape can have their own vortex of energy that's collected like sacred sites where the, where the energy exchange has, you know, increased and increased over, you know, thousands of years in certain sacred sites. Um, and, and then there's the, the sites that call us the geographic locations that call to us. Um, 
when that happens, I say when you if you drop in even for a vacation and you say, okay, what's what what is calling to me? Um, and then you you listen, you listen with your body, with your heart, um, images, smells, sounds. What what what's calling to you? Um, and then you respond to that call. Um, and when you go to that land, you're going in search of the one there that sent the call. Like when I go to a land um, that I know has called me, um, one of the first questions I ask is, that where are the, the uh, elders of this land, the non-human elders of mm -hmm. this land? Is it a tree? Is it a stone outcropping? Is it a particular place? Uh, like where would, where would the spirit of this land be on this here? And then I go there and make offerings and say, you know, I'm, I've, I've heard your call. I'm here. Um, and then I listen, you know, what's, what's here. Maybe it's something I have to bring there. Um, maybe it's something that needs from me there's something. There's always an exchange um, and something that has to awaken or to remind me of. Um, when I moved to this place in the mountains of North Carolina, uh, whenever I would come up here from where I used to live, it would, I would always end up uh, like grieving, but it wasn't a, a, a painful grief of, of something that I didn't have as a grieving of coming like it felt home. It's like, I know this place. It, it remembers me. Mm. And that's another place. It's like, there's, there's, land that already remembers your name. And when you get there, there's a reunion um, energetically of, of uh, connection um, that the land says, ah, you're back, you know, welcome. I definitely have felt that before, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And you explained it really well. I just wanted to ask you about your, you mentioned energy vortexes in sacred, certain sacred sites. Um, what do you think about energetic portals? Um, lots of things. It depends okay. on what, what the intention of <laughs> Sorry the to throw you off, but I just love your opinion on that. <laughs> um, so a portal being an opening. Yes. A gateway. A gateway. A gateway. And so my question is kind of like a gateway to what? Not, not, uh, not every threshold that you see is, is one that you need to walk through. Mm -hmm. um, just because it's an opening. So there, and, and at portals and gateways and energetic places like that, there are what I, I call them gatekeepers. Mm -hmm. There are guardians. There are, uh, you know, one of the things in the mountains of North Carolina at rivers, we have what's called uh, sirens. There's the feminine uh, spirits, that kind of the keepers of these places, these springs or these rivers. Um, and so you have to be aware that when you go to a, a place of a portal, um, there will be gatekeepers that, that uh, kind of hold the gate. Right. Um, and not everybody uh, will be allowed to pass through. Um, and, uh, and so that even, even recognizing to go there and to, if uh, one of the exercises I give my students sometimes in nature, I say, I want you to go out into nature and I want you to find the place where the two worlds meet. That's all. Just find the place where the two worlds meet that crack between the worlds. Um, and then spend some time there. 
Do you get a few blank looks of, oh my gosh, where do I go? <laughs> Not usually. By the time they've gotten into my training group, they, they, okay. they're, they're kind of, even they're if they, they, they'll go looking for something. I tell them how to feel it. It's, it's not always a place that feels like, oh, this feels great. It might feel a little like, oh, this is a little uneasy here. Mm. Um, it could be a time of day that, that opens that crack between the worlds, that, you know, that liminal time of sunrise or right before sunrise or right before sunset. There's an there's a opening that can happen in nature. Um, there's a way if mist rolls in across the landscape, it can too create a portal and opening. So there are, there are places um, that, that hold this, and then there are moments in time that can open it. Mm -hmm. um, there are shifts in, in weather patterns that can open a portal. Um, but if we think of portals simply being a crack between the worlds, um, you know, they, they, uh, there's a certain way that they, they require acknowledgement. Um, when you approach something with reverence, uh, then the, then that which is of reverence knows how to approach you. Mm. So there's that way of approaching that kind of a opening with a, a certain reverence, a certain, um, the, the way of introduction of making an offering of, of listening, um, kind of protocols of, of interaction at those places. Um, I would think of generally being one of uh, introduction, who I am, what I'm doing here, um, making an offering of some kind, um, and then listening, you know, spending time really listening. What is, what is offered back? What is this place? Um, and then there are portals with a very clear intent um, that one has created with a, a specific uh, ceremonial intent. And those are different, you know, um, you know, across the British Isles, they have uh, these dolmen stones, the two stones and the capstone across the top with these burial chambers um, and these stone circles that, that astrologically are, are aligned in certain patterns uh, toward the, the setting sun or the, the winter solstice. Um, and the, these passageways uh, of, uh, of energy um, these are portals. And, and so if I was, a, if somebody says, Hey, there's a portal, do you want to go see it? Do you want to go visit it? I would get curious. One is, um, what is this about? You know, I don't, curiosity is not enough for me just to go somewhere, mm -hmm. but like, what is it? Um, is there an invitation to come here? Is it all right to go there? What are mm -hmm. the protocols of stepping into that, um, into relationship? Um, and who, and the gatekeepers that attend that portal um, to be aware of and, and making uh, appropriate offerings and connection and relationship and listening and be willing to walk away if needed. Mm. Uh, but that's the, uh, I, I keep telling my students all about relationship, whether we're dealing with the other world, the spirits of the land, the ancestors, or your next door neighbor. <laughs> and, and respect to how, you know, treating, I, I guess I'm just thinking of the terminology tread lightly. So, you know, walk with mindfulness and respect. Yeah. And so that, again, that, that, that concept, as you approach the sacred reverence, the sacred approaches you. 
um, and so there's a, a there's an there's an interchange there. Um, you know, in this day and age where we're always, a lot of people kind of look at see an animal here. It's like, what is an animal telling me? Um, what does that animal mean? What is it? What is it? What's the message it's offering me? Mm-hmm. And you know, that's that's uh, often that gets a little bit e- uh, egocentric kind of thinking. <laughs> that the animal always has something to offer us. A message or a... <laughs> Yeah, maybe it needs something. Maybe the land is asking something of us. Um, and I think that's the, the missing component of... That's uh, an interesting twist. Yeah, that, that, that are we listening to what's being asked of us? Not what it has to give us. That's, mm. that's a, a very egocentric... Uh, way of thinking i love that reframing of it it's really clever it's yeah, more of a from a um, egocentric to an ecocentric or soul centric as one of my mentors bill plotkin would say he kind of shifts those words around um, that's a great quote <laughs> gosh i really want to go and get naked and run in nature now <laughs> It's too cold. It's winter. Um, <laughs> I live in the city. <laughs> in the essence of time, is there anything else you'd like to focus on? Um, if, if there's one thing I could uh, leave in parting. Yes, please. Is, um, is, is uh, you know, whoever listens this to, to believe and to know uh, that, that your life, you came here because you have something to offer that is needed. Um, and, and, and for those that are, those of us that are already here, we're the ones that need it, whatever it is. Um, and that remembering that gift, that you are the gift and the medicine you carry, this world needs. Um, and then finding those the, the, what I call the crossroads where your passion meets intersects with the needs of your people is where you're going to thrive. It's where you're going to heal whatever uh, earthly wounds or ancestral wounds that you carry. And it's where you offer healing that intersection of your passion and the needs of your people. And, and that would be human and non-human people um, that crossroads. Um, so my prayer would be that, uh, that you're able to find your way to that crossroads and, and live um, uh, with that passion and, and the memory of uh, those agreements you made with your ancestors before coming here about who you're coming here to be and what you're coming here to offer this world. And, uh, that was so beautiful. <laughs> I loved it. I guess I just want to ask you, and I always ask the guests on the show, if someone's looking to find their passion, what advice would you give them? Um, I would say find a way to quiet the internal dialogue and noise. Um, That it's not something you have to discover. It's something you remember. That would be the first shift. That's amazing. (laughs) Keep going. I'm sorry to interrupt. (laughs) That's amazing. Thank you. Your passion is not something that's going to be put in you from the outside. It's something that you came here with. Oftentimes looking at your own childhood, you can see the, the, um, 
the unrefined uh, aspects of it in, in one's play, in one's imagination, in, in what interested one. Um, and then it may have gotten offline in, in one's life. Um, so first think of it as not something to be discovered, but something to be remembered. And that the remembering happens when, when all the, uh, the voices and inner noises that don't belong to you get quiet. Um, and then, some, then this, this memory rises up. And that's the essence of the, uh, the walkabout, the essence of the, uh, the quest or the hill walking in the British Isles, this, this uh, going into the natural world and, and letting all the voices that don't belong to you eventually fade away until, until it's silent. Um, and then from that place, uh, deeply listening to what rises up, what you remember, uh, what, what truth that rises up in you, uh, that's your truth. Thank you so much. That was really beautifully said. You've given me so much food for thought and really reframed, maybe potentially you're helping me remember, but really reframed for me anyway, um, just, just how to think about nature and world and, and life. Yeah, the, the thing you are looking for is also looking for you. Yeah. And that's important <laughs> to remember. It's not just a, a one-way thing. Um, and that one day you meet at that crossroads. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest and speaking so eloquently and, you know, really clearly and beautifully. Thank you for the invitation. It's Love been that. a pleasure. Bye. Bye. I'll see you down the road, maybe. Okay. Thank you. Go well. Thanks, Keita. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today. If you would like to know more, follow Passion Harvest on Instagram or Facebook. We would love to hear from you. Tell us how you are living your passions. Please subscribe to our podcast and please rate and review it. Share it with a friend and inspire them to develop their passion. Goodbye and until next time, keep spreading that passion.